You guys, guess what? What? It's time for an 80s Moody Blues album. Welcome to Discord and Rhyme. Okay, I'm going to stop that now. (laughs) A podcast where we discuss our favorite Moody Blues album song by song. Occasionally, we talk about albums that are not by the Moody Blues, but today is not one of those days. Roll call. I'm Phil Maddox. I'm Mike DeFabio. I'm John McFerrin. And I'm Amanda Rogers. This week, it's a free for all because we're back in Moody Blues territory where we all belong. Mm. (laughs) So, Amanda... Why this particular Moody Blues album? Well, it's Long Distance Voyager, which is not one of the Core 7 albums. This one came out in 1981. And the reason we picked this one is because every few months we try to schedule something relatively easy to talk about just to give ourselves a little bit of a breather. And often that turns out to be a Moody Blues album just because a lot of us know those albums better than we know our own names. Mm. And this time we wanted to go with a post-Core 7 album just because we haven't done that yet. And this is a good one to start with. What's your personal history with the Moody Blues and or Long Distance Voyager? Well, I've been through my Moody Blues history on uh, basically every episode of this podcast. But with this album specifically, a few songs from it were on that greatest hit CD that was my first real introduction to the Moody Blues But it took me quite a while to really acknowledge the existence of the albums after Seventh Sojourn. Aside from The Other Side of Life, which I bought when I was like 12, because that's where your wildest dreams is. And I can't quite remember when I first started picking up the rest of the albums from Octave onward, but it was within the last 10 or 15 years, which is shockingly recent compared to all the others. And I still don't like them quite as much as the Core 7 for reasons I'll go into as we go on. But if, if you take these albums for what they are instead of wishing they were still in the 70s, they're, they're pretty good. So this is for me, this is an album that, like the like all the Moody Blues albums, I've had it for as long as I can remember. I had this on cassette. And for whatever reason, I just listened to Side 1 over and over again. Never really dug much into Side 2. I didn't really listen to Side 2 until much later. My actual history with the Moody Blues, eh, there's a bunch of episodes you can find to that. I, I've, I've loved them forever. But uh, So this is an album I've played less than the others just because, uh, for whatever reason, Child Phil did not play Side 2. <laughs> How about you, John? Uh, so I bought this one uh, in the summer of 1997 after my junior year of high school. Um. And this was at a period, you know, when I was getting into rock music as a whole at that point, the the Moody Blues were still like the dominant center of my musical sky, much to the consternation of everybody around me. (laughs) And so I I got this one in the summer and I I was still at the time – I had trouble adjusting the way I listened to music in such a way that I'd be able to tolerate the 80s. <laughs> everything just seemed 
off and too shiny and glossy. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so there was a, a certain level where I had to say, like, okay, no, this is, you know, I, I still recognize their voices. I still recognize their songwriting. It's okay. And, and I actually ended up taking to this album quicker than I expected. And, and I remember you know, early on, like this is one that I listened to a lot. I, I have a lot of memories of actually listening to this one fairly quietly uh, to help me fall asleep uh, during that summer. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was one that I, I felt very so- that just felt very soothing to me. Uh, so it's one I have a lot of, of pleasant memories with. It is one where you know I I can see a lot of the the cracks around the edges. It not because of when it was made, but you know maybe because the band was a little longer in the tooth at that point. But I still really really like it a lot, and I'm I'm really looking forward to talking about this one. And Mike, well, I've lived with Long Distance Voyager for uh, not nearly as long as you three have because this was the first Moody Blues album that I listened to because of Discord and Rhyme. Oh, wow. Yeah, I I knew all the Core 7 stuff, because I think at the time, the only ones I owned were On the Threshold of a Dream and To Our Children's Children's Children. And Mm. just being in the general, like, internet proximity of the rest of you made me want to buy up all the rest of the Core 7 albums and even (laughs) venture beyond. And uh, All right, you guys, we did it. Yeah. And I I ended up liking this one a lot more than I expected to, because most... uh, post-hiatus Moody Blues I'd heard was like, yeah, I know you're out there somewhere and didn't excite me all that much. But this, I think this is just a, a lovable album. So, yeah. Amanda, I feel like we don't need to talk about the uh, the history of the Moody Blues in much detail, like for most of their career. But why don't you fill us in on the story around this album? Time to continue the long saga of the Moody Blues that we've previously recounted in episodes 2, 28, 62, and 94, and a couple of times on the bonus feed. We are pathological. Mm. This one, this history section is going to be rather longer than the prior band histories because there wasn't really that much to talk about before. They toured, they made albums, they toured some more. But there's a gap of many years between Seventh Sojourn and Long Distance Voyager, and a lot happened during that time. We talked about the demise of the Core 7 version of the band in the Seventh Sojourn episode, which was basically after putting out seven groundbreaking albums in five years, they were all worn out and just didn't want to do it anymore. So in 1972, they went their separate ways. There were several releases in the next few years, though. In 1974, they put out This Is The Moody Blues, a double album greatest hits collection that is very, very worthwhile. It's got a simple game. Yes. And most of the band members released solo albums of varying quality to little fanfare for the most part. 
The most significant new release during this period is Blue Jays, a joint project from Justin Hayward and John Lodge, with a pun in the title that I never noticed until our co-host Ben asked me if it was deliberate. Hmm. Both their names start with J, and they're from the Moody Blues, so they're the Blue Jays. Uh, I, I did not know that. <laughs> it's kind of clever, I isn't thought it? it was kind of obvious. Is that wrong? No, I just, I never picked it up. And like Ben was listening to it one day and he texted me, is the pun in the title deliberate? And I thought, what pun? And then I looked at it and it all kind of clicked into place. And I think that's funny. And that is an uneven album, but the good songs on it are really good. As the dawn is breaking on your future, my child is the love, love Every door you open closes on me. I don't know if I can survive. I don't know if I can survive. Long is the road that takes you home, baby. Oh. Then in 1977, uh, the Moody Blues put out their first official live album called Caught Live Plus Five. It was recorded on the tour for To Our Children's Children's Children in 1969. And again, it's quite uneven, but it's a really interesting listen. Three sides are the concert recording, and the fourth side features five previously unreleased outtakes from various studio albums, which were mostly fantastic. It's like awaking from a dream All I remember is the lullaby I couldn't tell you where I've been A thousand images just flutter by Taking my time in a white limousine If I same year, four of the five band members started talking about getting back together and making an actual album. The problem was that Mike Pinder, the Mellotron wizard who single-handedly revolutionized the history of rock music and never gets the credit for it, had moved to California and didn't want to come back to England. So after the rest of them pestered him for a while, because at that point they still realized that they were not truly the Moody Blues without him, he finally said, oh, fine, but you have to come here. So... They all flew off to Los Angeles, including producer Tony Clark, and they started recording at the record plant there until it burned down and took most of their recorded material with it. So they transferred to Pinder's home studio, and there is no evidence to suggest he was responsible for the fire, but I'm not ruling it out either. <laughs> and they finished the album there after a lot of other disasters, such as car crashes and calamitous rainstorms and divorces and just all manner of nastiness. The end result was Octave, an album that I think is their third worst. 
In my opinion, the worst Moody Blues album is Keys of the Kingdom and then Sir La Mer and then Octave. It's not a total write-off. Some of the songs are truly fantastic, like The Day We Meet Again and Had to Fall in Love. Some of them are decent songs that get dragged down by batshit crazy arrangements like Top Rank Suite. And some of them are just all around bad, like I'll Be Level With You and Under Moonshine. And the truth is that Pender's heart was just not in it. And it shows. His one songwriting contribution was One Step Into the Light, which is okay. It's another one that I think would be better with a different and less obnoxious arrangement, but I like the lyrics and the melody, especially the line, There's one thing I can do, play my Mellotron for you. There's one thing I can do, play my Mellotron for you. Try to blow away your city blues. Are not unfound. Get your feet back on the ground. The trees will set us free. We cannot lose. I think that line is very touching, especially considering that he really was not getting along with the other guys very well. They were creatively at odds a lot of the time, and he ended up having a big and nasty fight with Graham Edge that has often been alluded to as the reason why Pinder ultimately left the band altogether. So then Octave was released in June of 1978, complete with a bonkers release party <laughs> thrown by Decca. And we will put details in a video of that party in the show notes because seriously, it was bananas and you need to see it. Pinder didn't come to the party and he also declined to go on tour to support the album release. And the reason he gave was because his immigration status in the U.S. was uncertain because it takes forever to settle that kind of thing. And he was worried that if he left the country, they wouldn't let him back in and then he'd be separated from his kids. So that doesn't really explain why he didn't want to participate in the American part of the tour, but whatever. He just wasn't feeling it. So the rest of the band says, "Okay, fine, we'll hire a sub for the tour. And they picked up a guy called Patrick Moraz. Most recently, he was part of Yes. Yeah, he was. hired him one of the times Rick Wakeman quit the band, and that is him on Relayer. Wakeman wanted back in and yes, threw Mraz back out mm. and he bummed around doing solo albums and trying to get yes to pay him the money he was owed. Apparently he never did get paid for the Relayer tour, which if true, really sucks yeah. and is also totally believable. <laughs> uh, and then the Moody Blues brought him along for the Octave tour. Also around this time, there came a very minor and unimportant album called Jeff Wayne's Musical Version of the War of the Worlds, which you can learn all about in episode 34, and I highly recommend that you do. Me too. The chances of anything coming from Mars are a million to one, but still they come. Ooh la, y'all. Okay, so at this point, I should reveal that one of my sources for all of this information is the book Long Distance Voyagers by Mark Cushman, volumes one and two, and you should know that it really, really sucks. It is the worst biography of a band I have ever read, and I have read Hammer of the Gods by Stephen Davis, the trashiest biography of Led Zeppelin you'll ever find. 
Volume one was a little bit better than two, but they are both over 700 pages that are basically just a giant list of facts and quotes. There's no attempt to construct any kind of a narrative. There's pages upon pages of album and concert reviews reprinted in their entirety with no effort to synthesize the general critical opinions, and there's no index. So the books are functionally useless. There's some good information to be found in these books, but it takes so much digging that it's not really worth it. One out of 10 would not recommend. Those books feel to me like the the sketch notes that an author would have for themselves before yeah. they wrote the actual book. Yes, I agree. And then he just and published it's the notes. riddled with errors, typos and factual mm. errors, like song titles are wrong. Names of band members are wrong. In the acknowledgments, he thinks Nora Mullen. Her name is Norda. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, one of the facts that I managed to excavate from this book is that the remaining band members weren't too happy with Tony Clark anymore either, and they felt like he didn't really have his head in the game. So they decided to hire producer Pip Williams, who had previously worked with the band Status Quo and was responsible for arranging the strings in the song Kung Fu Fighting. Everybody was Kung Fu Personally, I don't think that's very impressive, but the Moody Blues thought he was pretty great and they hired him for their next album. Only the thing is, I don't think anybody actually communicated to either Mike Pinder or Tony Clark that they were both being replaced. Mm -hmm. They found this out when the album release was announced in the news and they said, wait, what? Very, very yes of them. (laughs) Yes. So Pinder and Clark pulled a early Roger Waters and they took him to court over the right to use the name, the Moody Blues. And Pinder argued, I I think fairly reasonably, that he was a foundational part of the band and they weren't the Moody Blues without him. And unfortunately, the courts disagreed. And so the album release was able to go ahead. Uh, But, you know, what a crappy thing to do. And I think as far as I know, it just like wrecked a lot of personal relationships, which really sucks. And yeah, so this is a fairly dramatic period, which is why this band history was longer than usual. But that's all we need to know for right now. So let's move along and get started. All right. So before we get started on Long Distance Voyager, we'd like to say thank you to our newest Patreon subscribers, Bart and Justin. Not Simpson or Hayward, unfortunately, but we're sure they are just as cool. And thanks again to all the veteran cosmic rockers who are already there. We hope we're not talking out of turn Uh? when we advise you to go to patreon.com slash discord pod and look at the awesome rewards we have there, including exclusive bonus episodes, several of which are related to the Moody Blues and other fun stuff. We also now have a merch store, which will be available for the next 22,000 days at TeePublic. There's a link in the show description, or you can just go to tpublic.com and search for discord pod and you'll find us. That also goes for Twitter and Instagram, where we are at discord pod. You can also email discordpod at gmail.com if you want to say hi or tell us we're the apple of your eye. And now, on with the Gemini dream that is this podcast. Let's start with track one, The Voice. Oh, 
Let me be clear at the front here. Octave, the album that came before this, is not a bad album. I enjoy a good deal of it. It is, however, an utterly and completely inessential album. Yeah. There's not a single song on that album that is essential for Moody Blues fans, nor is there anything there that could have really made a huge dent in the charts back in you know the late 70s. I think the band knew that, and after Mike Pinder bowed out, they realized they needed to do something if they wanted to stay relevant. So, with Patrick Mraz in tow, they recorded Long Distance Voyager. And while they didn't think that The Voice was the most commercial song on the album, that honor went to Gemini Dream, they still thought enough of it to lead off the album with it and release it as the second single. So, I mean, Elephant in the Room here, if you've listened to the classic seven, it's immediately clear here that something is very different. Yeah. Many of the old mainstays of the Moody Blue sound are gone. The group seems to be going for a purely pop sound here. And while many people would feel inclined to say that the band is quote unquote selling out, man, by pushing the synthesizer so far into the foreground like this and foregoing any of these super artsy trappings that made the band stand out in their early years, one thing about the band has remained consistent, and that is that Justin Hayward and John Lodge are fantastic pop songwriters. Like, they worked very well in the context of art rock, they work very well in the context of pop. So Hayward, freed from the burdens of having to write stuff in the, quote, old Moody Blues style, is freed up here to just completely indulge his inner pop songwriter. And I think on The Voice, he actually managed to come out with one of his all-time best songs. The key thing that makes The Voice stand out, again, beyond all of its, you know, 80s trappings, is just how good the melody is. Hayward here has written one of his all-time best melodies, and while the sound is nowhere near as timeless as, you know, say, Tuesday Afternoon, oh, sorry, as good as Forever Afternoon, parentheses, Tuesday? Mm. <laughs> Close parentheses. Yeah. I think the melody is every bit as good, and he also manages to take several great melodies and jam them together over the course of this song. The bridge of this song doesn't really have much to do with the main melody of the song, but it's gorgeous and it works wonderfully. If you think the Moody Blues died after the classic seven and are hesitant to dig deeper into their catalog, the primary reason that I would recommend Long Distance Voyager as your next stop is largely just because it opens with this song. And if you don't like this song, well, I've got good news for you. You're not going to like anything that the late era Moody Blues do, and you can just stop and not have to worry about it. If, however, you think this is one of the group's best songs, as I do, then, well, bad news, 
Like, you're going to have to dig through a bunch of albums that are very inconsistent to find more songs that you like. You know, while none of these albums are nearly as good as the classic seven, you're going to find an awful lot to like about this era of the band. How about you, uh, John? What do you think of The Voice? I love The Voice. You know, it, it's it's one that I liked immediately. And it's one that I found has just grown on me more and more over the years. I so, so I saw the band three times in concert. I saw them in 1998. I saw them in 2000. I saw them in 2005. So the first two times were when they still had Ray Thomas in the band, uh, once with an orchestra, once without. And uh, each of the first two times, they opened with The Voice. And I was always just struck by, wow, this is a perfect concert opener. This is a perfect album opener. And, you know, what that I want to slightly push back on in something you said is the idea that from the very beginning there, it, it's totally disconnected from the old sound. But I think that they preserved one really, really great thing from some of the, the earlier albums. And that's with that uh, that opening uh, synth sound, you know, that sounds like a, a small prick of light, just like expanding and just like rushing towards you like a comet. Because they did something similar with that, just in a, a slightly different way at the beginning of On the Threshold of a Dream and Every Good Boy Deserves Favor. I think that they're just like mm. taking that uh, same sort of thing and, and just updating how they're going to do it here. You know, w- with that that sense of, oh, this is a Moody Blues album, but it was also this is a Moody Blues album for the 80s. I think it's a really, really striking way to go about things. And yeah, everything you said about the, the general catchiness of the song is wonderful. The the mid-song guitar solo is one that I can sing almost note for note just at the drop of a hat. And, and then one other thing I want to mention is, um, so before I was in the habit of regularly making uh, playlists for myself, I remember... Um, making you know making a, a moody blues mixtape for myself like in the in the in the late 90s and i remember just it's like oh of course the voice is going to be the first one mm-hmm. and a part of that was because of uh, it was the the regular opener for their concerts at that, that point but it was still like what else is going to go here and into this day when i have a, a giant two-part moody blues uh, playlist that's roughly modeled on the structure of of how their concerts used to be like the voice was obviously going to be the starting track what else was i going to start it with nothing else would make sense so yeah great for the album great for their career i absolutely love it what's your take mike oh i love the voice and this this was not always the case this uh oh this was the first this was the only song on this album that i had heard before um, I think I had heard it on the radio at some unusual moment where they, they played something that wasn't Tuesday afternoon or Nights of White Satin. And I don't think I even realized that it was the same band that did those songs just because the sound is so different. And that's that sort of 80s uh, sheen hadn't uh, it was too it was too recent to for it to have kind of turned into a, a sort of patina. It was just old enough to be dated. Old enough to be dated, but not old enough to be classic yet. Yes, exactly. Of course, now I've completely come to terms with all of that, and I just think it's a terrific song. Just melodically, it's a fantastic song. Uh, it might be, at least of all of Justin Hayward's compositions for the band, this might get stuck in my head the most. Hmm. Either this or Gypsy. It does have... The other thing that kind of turned me off from it was it does open with... Uh, one of my pet peeve rhymes, which is school and golden rule, 
just because yeah. I, nobody ever taught the golden rule in any classroom I've ever been in. Unless the golden rule you're referring to is stop being so disruptive or just ignore the other children and they won't be mean to you. Uh, <laughs> the last thing I wanted to mention, and it, it doesn't it's not relevant to this song in particular, but I, I can't think of another place to mention it. The overall vibe of Long Distance Voyager when I heard it reminded me of the Ween song Tried and True. Yeah. To the extent that I felt like that song could almost be a, a long distance Voyager outtake, except that Justin Hayward would never sing something like, could you smell my whole life? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> At the dawn, I woke, I was alone, rising. So love the voice. This was the concert opener the first time I saw them live, which was in 2002, I want to say. It was Ray Thomas's either last or second to last tour. So I just barely caught him. And it was, I, like, I didn't know what to expect. I was just so thrilled to finally be seeing my favorite band in concert. And they opened up with this song and I just like left my body momentarily because <laughs> I was so excited. Um that long intro at the very beginning was composed solely by Patrick Moraz, and it wasn't even specifically for this song. It was a totally separate thing he had written, and they decided to use the first, like, 30 seconds of it or so to introduce the voice. Hmm. It's a cool idea, and like John said, it's reminiscent of some things they had done previously. I like it a lot. But did Patrick Moraz get any songwriting credit? Uh. No, he did not. <laughs> he did not get any kind of credit. He got one co-writing credit with Graham Edge. On the other side of life for a fairly dumb song. Anyhow, back to the voice. <laughs> um, it is a fantastic song. It might be too long. You know, I think maybe I the second bridge doesn't need to be there. This could be cut by at least a minute. But on the other hand, the second bridge has the line with your arms around the future and your back up against the past, which I love. So, yeah, I think I think this could have been improved by cutting it back some. But on the other hand, I like it so much. I'm OK with it being as long as it is. Yeah, I, I wouldn't cut a second out of it. I like this whole thing <laughs> front to back. It's really good. And if you need a little bit of a comparison point to prior Moody Blues work, uh, because, you know, it's true. This does hit you right across the face with 
you know, we're in the 80s now. <laughs> this is a whole new style. But the song itself is not unlike Lovely to See You. Like sister songs almost. So just, I mean, listen to it in that spirit. And then if, if that's, if the production is something that you have a hard time getting around, that might be helpful. If I was sitting in a chair and I heard this playing behind me, I would turn around to look at it. Is that how the voice works? I've never actually watched it. I think that's. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, how about we move on to the next song? Talking out of turn. with you seven minutes of ballady john lodge is not the most fist-pumpingly exciting proposition in the world to me matter of fact isn't life strange might be my single least favorite song out of the whole course seven but what do you know i like this song a lot yes it's soft it's smooth you will not feel cool while you're listening to it but It has an undeniable sincerity, which is only emphasized by the way John Lodge doesn't really have the strongest voice when he's singing all by himself. And it helps that what he's singing about is a subject I find really relatable, that of needing more from people than they can reasonably be expected to give and also not knowing when to keep your mouth shut. You don't hear too many songs like that. People love to write songs about how great they are or how they were done so wrong or both at once. But you don't hear many people come right out and say, wow, I was a real jerk. It kind of makes me think of there was I heard an interview with Paul McCartney once. I forget who the interviewer was, but the the subject of the conversation turned to uh, 
the fact that Yesterday is the, the most covered song of all time. But something McCartney mentioned in this interview was that a lot of the time when people cover that song, uh, they they don't sing it as it was written. They'll sing when they when they sing the bridge, they'll sing something like, I must have said something wrong or mm-hmm. I guess I said something wrong. And that's that's not how it goes. It's I said right. something they wrong. They want to modify it. They want to re- just distance themselves as yeah. much as they can from any kind of culpability. Yep. But mm. that's that's not how it goes. That's not how it goes. So you could argue that talking out of turn doesn't need to be almost seven and a half minutes long. And that's probably true, but I don't mind. And some people might have a problem with Patrick Moraz's incessant bloop-blopping in the background, but I'm a sucker for some good old sample and hold. And yes, there will be a Neil Young clip here. <laughs> See, I don't mind, you know, the bleep blooping in the background at all. I think it really adds to the song's atmosphere. Yeah. Mraz kind of gets a raw deal from a lot of people. Like, he... I mean, at his worst, like, see, you know, anything on Sir La Mer. He could be mm-hmm. <laughs> intolerably cheesy. But here, I mean, he's very, very modern and 80s, but he's also doing interesting things. He's not just making big, loud 80s chords or making <laughs> sounds like he would like by the late 80s. He's actually doing interesting stuff. But yeah, I, I like this one a lot, too. Um I mean, I think Mike's probably dead on where does it need to be as long as it does this need to be stairway to heaven long? (laughs) Probably not, but it never wears out its welcome because the melody is so relentlessly charming and decent and the arrangement never gets bogged down in being repetitive. So I like the whole thing a lot. It kind of reminds me of kind of contemporary electric light orchestra ballads. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, that's certainly not a bad thing. This is around the time John Lodge just got very good at writing these kind of kind of sad, but more just bittersweet kind of ballads. Like he wrote a very similar song again in the number two slot on their next album, The Present, Meet Me Halfway, which is another fantastic song. Mm -hmm. Yeah, another an absolute winner. Uh, what do you think, Amanda? It's so long. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, it's so long. And this is, it doesn't earn that length at all. I just want to get that out of the way up top. And even, I don't think anything on their first seven albums crossed the seven minute mark. Like even Legend of a Mind is only about six and a half, I think. I might be wrong, but they rarely were this indulgent with running time before. Knights in White Satin might, if you include, like, the outro. Oh, maybe, yeah, depending on where you cut the track, yeah. But the thing is, I'm never going to be the biggest fan of John Lodge ballads, but I like this one. I think it's good, and I like the the, the bleep blooping, especially that kind of droney, boingy noise that runs mm-hmm. through the whole thing in the background. I think that's really atmospheric, and it sounds great. The strings, there's real strings in here. I thought they were a synth for a long time, but I just recently looked it up, and they're real, and they're very good. The guitar solo is good. 
one another big complaint I do have though is in the bridge where my pet peeve rhyme is where he sings I didn't mean to make you cry I don't need an alibi. Yeah. The word alibi has never been used legitimately in a song. <laughs> it it is only ever used when somebody cannot come up with a better rhyme. Pretty sure that's irony. It's kind of like the word strife. You only hear it when somebody can't come up with a better line for life. It's really, it's, oh, it's so bad and so lazy. But you know what? On the whole, I think this is pretty okay. (laughs) And the thing about the synths, you know, I I do my share of making fun of Patrick Mraz. That is true. But on this album, he's, he's, I think he sounds good. Yeah. You know, I think it's a combination of, uh, the producer, Pip Williams, kind of keeping things under control and also Mraz still being the new guy. But on this album and the present, I mean, his synths are very prominent, but they're not out of control. And then later on, uh, they got Tony Visconti, who just left good taste at the door when he walked in to produce the Moody Blues. And the situation changed considerably. But for right now, we're we're still sounding pretty great. I will refuse to accept any comment that implies that rock and roll over you is not in the goodest of good taste. (laughs) Classiest song of the whole decade. John, how about you? (laughs) I really like it. Uh, You know, as I basically said in in the introduction, there's very much a, a sense in which this album was baby's first eighties for me. And again, I was 17. So, you know, I had a ways to go at that point. Uh, So, and this track I remember was the sense of like, Oh, that's, that's a lot of bleep blooping. Am I sure it's okay for me to listen to this? Maybe I should go (laughs) back and listen to some hard rock. Uh, But I got acclimated to it. And and I was like, this is really nice. And I really like the, you know, I, Almost immediately, I, I found I really liked the emergence of the guitar solo in the middle. Like I felt, I feel like it's earned at that point in terms of like just kind of ascending out of. I was going to say the morass, yeah. but there's got to be a better word there. <laughs> uh, I, the morass. Uh, the, the morass. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, there, there needs to be a better word there. Uh, I agree. It's too long. When when I saw them a third time. Uh, in 2005, they actually cut this uh, by quite a bit. It, it was clear, like you, mm-hmm. you could just lop just a big chunk of the instrumental work off of this and you don't really lose a thing. I see why they wanted to make it as big and bombastic as they did. It might have been a mistake, but at the same time, just the, the, the song as a whole, I really, really like it. Even if I do, again, you know, maybe get a little impatient here and there in the last couple of minutes, it's it's still really good. And even though it goes on for too long, that string part where they're just sliding up and down the melody, there's too much of it, but I like it a lot. All right. Well, anyway, let's move on to track three, Gemini Dream. Solo! 
so much. <laughs> you can't let go tonight's the night. If you can believe it, (laughs) this is the first Moody Blues song that Justin Hayward and John Lodge wrote together. They had worked together on uh, Blue Jays while the Moody's were on hiatus, as Amanda mentioned, but never on a Moody Blues album. I guess they didn't. Lodge wrote the verses about being on the road in a rock and roll band, and Hayward wrote the part about the Gemini dream. They have nothing in common thematically, but... It works anyway. That's why they called it Gemini Dream, because there's yes. two separate parts. Two, yes. As you might have noticed, this is kind of a disco song. An incredibly dorky disco song. But that's a feature, not a bug. Listening to it makes me wish the Moody Blues had gotten together with Giorgio Moroder and made a full-on space disco album. Now, can you imagine? It, it worked for Sparks. It worked for Sparks. We could have gotten a, a number one in heaven style masterpiece. But we're going to have to make do with uh, the next closest thing, which is Marauder's own 15-minute disco cover of Knights in White Satin. Oh. It's <gasps> it's spelled with a K, and you're <laughs> about to hear it right now. I've heard this before. It's so amazing. Two seconds in, please play all 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah. This is amazing. This is primarily what I know Giorgio Moroder for. It takes up the whole yeah. side of, of the album it's of the so same long. name. And the middle section is called The Middle of the Night. <laughs> also yes. with a K. So as for Gemini Dream, uh, they mm. made a video for this song, but it's not as awesomely cheesy as one might hope. It sounds like it should have like video trails behind everybody and chroma keyed <laughs> stars and space stuff flying by in the background. But it's just your standard band playing the song in a void video, except it appears to have been shot at about eight frames per second. So it's just kind of annoying to watch. Gemini Dream was the lead single from Long Distance Voyager. It made it to number 12 on the Billboard Hot 100 and went all the way to number one in Canada. Woo! Good on you, Canada, you bunch of dorks. We are a gloriously dorky nation. (laughs) 
What do you think, John? So first, I am required to mention that back in one of our This Is Comp episodes, I observed that this song is structurally identical to Sharp Dressed Man by ZZ Top. Oh, it totally oh, is. Yeah. <laughs> Compliment. Um, I I really like this one. I, I will say that you know I, I knew this one before I bought the album because I had the Legend of a Band compilation from 1989, and this was one of the songs that I initially thought like, so this is from when they got bad, right? <laughs> and so I had to again, like, there was a little bit of a sense of okay, the the 80s are not necessarily bad. Music was allowed to be good. Music was allowed to be made after 1976. You can do this, John. Uh, <laughs> But I came to like it first in a largely ironic way. And over time, you know, I've I've just found more and more fun things about it. You know, the guitar is really hot for how dorky this song is. <laughs> I can't imagine a Moody Blues concert where this wouldn't get people really up and just having a lot of fun. Like, there's not a lot of really, really fun, raucous, dorky numbers like this. I mean, there, there's, there, there's things that are maybe are, 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 are faster that, that still have, have a bit of that, but nothing quite like this. And yeah, it's, it's a blast. I, it's, it's not even necessarily, I don't even sure necessarily it makes my top three or four of the album necessarily, but it's, it's really good. I have found that liking things ironically is the gateway to liking them unironically. 100%. Yes. (laughs) Amanda, what do you think? This is the dorkiest song in the whole wide world. (laughs) This was on that greatest hit CD that my dad had that I now have. I think it's the second song on it. And when I was a teenager, I couldn't even bear to listen to Gemini Dream because (laughs) I would cringe so hard. I would just implode and create a little black hole of secondhand embarrassment (laughs) because this is so dorky. But these days I have owned up to my own dorkiness and now I think it's kind of groovy. Yep. (laughs) It's, It's not anywhere near as cool as the band obviously thinks it is, but it's not as horrible and embarrassing as I used to think either. It, like like I mentioned while the clip was playing, I just, I love the drums and I don't even know why they're not really anything <laughs> special. If you're judging by like real disco drums, they're, they are not up to par, but it's still, they're still just so thumpy and catchy and they're, they're owning their dorkiness just like I have come to do. And you know what? That is not a bad way to live. So I was hanging on till last just cause. I thought for sure somebody's going to mention like this is like an ABBA song, right? Oh, it hundred percent. Yeah, it totally is. Like, yeah, like drop huh. this on like Voulez Vous or Super Trooper. Yeah, yeah. Like, and it's exactly. I mean, specifically the song I'm thinking of is on and on and on. Yeah, which yes. it sounds almost exactly like.
But, you know, you might think the Moody Blues sound like ABBA. The group that recorded The Dream and The Voyage now <laughs> sound like the band that did Dancing yeah. Queen. You might think, well, that sounds terrible. But nope, it's great. I love this song a <laughs> lot. And I said in the ABBA episode, uh -huh. 80s Moody Blues sounds like late 70s ABBA. It does. Mm -hmm. So just a couple of little personal fill notes here. One, I did not know what a Gemini was when this album came out, but I, or when I first heard this album or when I first remember hearing this album, but I did know about Gemini man from Mega Man three. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew that this came out before Mega Man three. So I'm like, Oh, this must be something. Note two. I used to go to a miniature golf course all the time. And this was on their playlist. It played at least oh, wow. once an hour for years. Wow. So wow. every time I played miniature golf, I would hear Gemini Dream at least twice, usually more. Wow. This has nothing to do with the quality of the song. This is just a fun fill fact. But yeah, it's it's super great. Like, I don't care how cheesy or stupid it is. I just unironically love it to death. And I always have and I always will. Anyway, let's move on to a song that does not sound anything like Gemini Dream <laughs> in my world. <laughs> hostless episodes is we divide the number of songs on the album by the number of hosts and then we take turns picking however many songs we're entitled to to be in charge of and i picked last this time around which is only fair since when we did a question of balance i immediately demanded the song question before anybody else got a chance but it means i ended up with the dregs that nobody else wanted on long distance voyager now to be clear i don't dislike in my world i just don't like it very much it's a third-rate Justin Hayward ballad, which means it's still decent because he's got a high floor, but it's not terribly remarkable. I think that if this had just been like one or two notches more interesting, I would like it more. But as it is, I just find it kind of insipid and dull, except for the chorus or bridge or whatever you would call this part right here. And I'm only just beginning to believe what you have done. chord changes in that section and I really love the way it resolves on the phrase all the time. That part of the song is lovely. 
but it ends up unintentionally emphasizing how uninteresting the rest of it is. The biggest obstacle for me here is the production. If they had made this song during the Core 7 period, I think I would probably like it better. This is far too slick and shiny and clean. Back in the 60s and 70s, everything was analog. So when the Moody Blues did all their thousands of layers of overdubs, a certain amount of tape hiss was unavoidable. And I like that, actually. It's like the the background radiation throughout all seven of those albums. And for me, it's a big part of what makes them sound so special. Yeah. But now they're using all digital equipment and all that lovely tape hiss is gone. And with Moraz on board, you know, like we said before, they've really gone all in on the synthesizers to this song's detriment. I wish that high-pitched flutey synth line had been played by Ray Thomas, who's right there with his actual flute. I don't know why they didn't just have him play it. And I also wish that Hayward's acoustic guitar were something actually interesting. What is he doing there? It's the laziest guitar part he's ever put down. (laughs) And I also wish Hayward had done another pass on the lyrics to make them a bit less generic and cliched. Yeah. There is a pedal steel guitar in here, a real pedal steel played by session musician BJ Cole, but it's mushed in with all the synths and whatnot, so it doesn't stand out the way it should. And when you can hear it, it sounds really weird and out of place. And then there's a completely stupid false ending and then a coda for last like a half an hour for no reason at all. (laughs) This is a song that has a lot of potential, but just doesn't live up to it. It could be gorgeous, but instead it is fine. This is a song I hear people bag on a lot, and, like, I get it. But, like, to me, this sounds very much like one of the ballady songs on Dire Straits' Brothers in Arms. Mm. Like, yeah. it really kind of oh, gives maybe. me a Why Worry vibe. Yeah, I can uh-huh. hear that. Why worry? There should be laughter after pain. There should be sunshine after rain. And like nobody really bags on that song that much. And you know, because I can never remember that song. But like this song's fine. I mean, like kind of like talking out of turn. It's too long. Whereas, you know, with talking out of turn, I'm like, I don't mind the length because I can groove on it enough that it doesn't bother me here. It's like, this is a little long. It's just an incredibly pretty melody. And it's hard to come up with, you know, specific things to say about this song other than it's very nice. And if you like Justin Hayward's voice, you know, and his general songwriting style, you'll probably like this at least a little. It's kind of caught between two worlds, because like Amanda said, if this had been like on an album, like during the Tony Clark years, it probably would have, you know, sounded more organic and like there might have been some better production choices mm-hmm. and it would have turned out better. Yeah. But if it had come out during the Tony Visconti years, it would have been the worst song ever <laughs> recorded. Yep. So but here it's just kind of in the middle and it sounds nice. What do you think, Mike? It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> this is if if you go back all the way to our very first episode where we talked about Earth, Wind, and Fires all in all, you know, it was it was so early that I I didn't know we were allowed to be mean. <laughs> so I was I was much nicer to the song I'll write a song for you than I otherwise would have been. 
And one of the one of the comparisons I, I made to it was it's 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 sort of like a moody blues ballad. <clears throat> this is the sort of moody blues ballad I was I was thinking of. You know, it's it's pretty enough that it's pleasant to listen to. I think I would like this song a lot more if the lyrics just weren't so trite by Justin Hayward standards. Yeah. It's heaven on earth They're when bad. you're close to me is not it's not exactly question. And in my world, it's heaven on earth when you're close right. to me. That doesn't even really make sense. Yeah. If you look at it too closely. Right. Yeah. Yep. Well, I mean, that's a that's a complaint I have with most of this record. Most of the lyrics are kind of nothing. Yeah. With one exception that we'll get to later. <laughs> <laughs> it's too long. The guitar playing isn't interesting, but at least the guitars sound nice. They have that Wilbury-ish shimmer to them. It's just not... Not what I go to Justin Hayward for. What do you think, John? So originally, I absolutely loved this one. And, and I still really like it. But the, the thing is, you know, on a moment-to-moment basis, I like everything in this song when I'm listening to it. And even when I, you know, then think about how does the structure of it as a whole work, I say, yeah, this is really good. But then I take a step back and just kind of look at it. It's like, does there really need to be so much of it? Yeah. And does it really need to have quite that much of a glossy shimmer to it? And I'm just like, uh, a little less might have been fine, which again is, is a shame because I like a lot of the details. I, I like the like the slow blending in of Mraz's keyboard after the first verse. I like the way that the pedal steel is integrated. There's little bits in in just sprinkled all throughout the song that I, I find really enjoyable. And yet now when I listen to it, it's like, boy, this, this song just keeps going, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, I like it, but it's, it's nowhere near as high for me as it was, as it was maybe 20 years ago. Flip to the B side. Let's Ooh. go with track five. Meanwhile, <laughs> Conversation, you can hear the feeling change like a river running down, down to the sea. And if you need an explanation, I defy you to explain, but something's not the same, and it's bothering me. I think I see.
Meanwhile is my favorite song on this album and has been almost since the first time I heard it. Lyrically, it's a great look into the mind of a young man who's coming to realize that getting a girl to like him isn't quite as simple as pointing at a girl he finds attractive and saying, there, I want that one. And who now needs to figure out what to do with this realization that he's not the main character in the story of the universe. Now you tell me. Yeah. I won't lie. This does bring me back to my teenage and young adult feels. But my primary interest in the song is always centered on the arrangement, even before I knew the details of why this might be the case. This is actually the track on the album with the fewest overdubs. But perhaps more than anywhere else on the album, it feels to me like every overdub really counts. The six-string acoustic guitar played by Hayward in the main recording is overlaid with another six-string, a 12-string, and two electric guitar parts. The electric piano played by Mraz is overlaid by a Minimoog with a little bit of backwards piano near the end. And that's it. The song ends up feeling relatively timeless with only a general gloss in the overall production to make it clear that this definitely comes from the early 1980s. And while I understand why it was never going to be anything more than a deep cut, it's one of my very favorite Moody Blues deep cuts. What do you think, Amanda? I love this. Aside from the voice, this is my favorite song on the album, too. And a lot of it is because this was one of the first songs they recorded in these sessions. And then they blessedly left it alone. Yes. <laughs> and later on, they started really piling up the overdubs and the bleep bloops and whatnot. But they decided not to mess with Meanwhile. They felt like it was okay as is. And so that's why it does sound noticeably different from the rest of the album, but in a really good way. This is pop production done right. And when Justin Hayward was really trying, God damn, could that man write a pop song? And this is also, we talked about this in a lot in the Def Leppard episode, how that album took forever and fiddling with the songs kind of ended up ruining them a little bit in a lot of cases. It's probably why I don't like that record. Yeah, I mean, I still like the songs, but I can see people's point that they're just too fussed over. And that was a problem they had on Long Distance Voyager here, too. When we discussed to our children's children's children, I brought up that their total studio time to make that album was about three weeks. Yep. Total studio time for Long Distance Voyager was 65 weeks. Yeah. And again, not to the song's benefit. But they had to get painted smile exactly right. Exactly. It took forever. And this was something that Patrick Mraz actually complained about. He's like, I laid down my little mini Moog part in one take and then the rest of them spent six weeks Trying to get every little detail exactly right. And again, I think that's because they had digital equipment now. They weren't wasting all that tape trying to do things over and over again. Like, I get the impulse, but I don't think it was the right instinct. So I'm really happy that they left well enough alone with Meanwhile. Because if this had gotten fussed over the way the other songs did, it would have gotten wrecked. As it is, it's damn near perfect. This is such a great song. To me, this is a good example of one of my favorite micro-genres of Moody Blues song. <laughs> the Justin Hayward, slightly country-tinged pop number that kicks off side two. 
Yeah. Yes. Up to you. Because, yeah, it's up to you yeah. from A Question of Balance. You and uh-huh. me from Seventh Sojourn. It's Cold Outside of Your Heart from the present. Well, didn't kick off side two. But oh, it doesn't? I can't remember where it falls on the sides. Right after that. And then I guess Vintage uh. Wine, kind of, from Sir Lamar. No. A song I actually like, but. Me too. But uh, <laughs> but Justin Hayward was very good at writing these kinds of like kind of upbeat, mildly country inspired pop songs. I don't like this as much as It's Up to You or You and Me, but it's damn good. Mm-hmm. And it's also nice to hear. So side one of this album is probably their most. It's the 80s side, whereas side two, they kind of let their hair down a little bit and do a little bit more traditional moody bluesy stuff kind of for better and for worse mm-hmm. but yeah meanwhile is excellent just a fantastic song what do you think mike yeah this is more like it like in my world is the the part of the album where i start thinking you know i i wish mike pender were still around to give us a nice sad boy mellotron anthem mike yeah. pender could sing his song that never ends <laughs> <laughs> and this this does not I do not feel like that for the rest of the album. This is I guess technically it's soft rock, but I, I I guess it's more like what I wish soft rock sounded like more often. Like you, you hear the term soft rock and you think like air supply, which is not they are not <laughs> rock at all. They're they're just soft. This it has to yep. rock a little bit. And this does. It's got it's got a nice just enough of a bounce to it. And this is a bop. This is a yeah. real bop. And it's it's lyrically, you know, thematically, it's sort of uh, kind of related to uh, talking out of turn where it's it's really it's just mm-hmm. like, wow, I, I really I really screwed this whole situation up. And I in particular, I really like the the electric piano. I don't think they'd ever used a, a Rhodes on a song before, unless I'm mistaken. I'm, I've heard octave, but I barely remember any of it. So, yeah, this is it's a whole new sound for them it's a new sound for them that isn't a a dx7 (laughs) which i have different feelings about all right let's move on to the first song on this album that is not a hayward or lodge composition Twenty-two Thousand days So when the Moody Blues started making attempts to be more hip and 80s, this led to one significant problem. What were they going to do with Ray Thomas and Graham Edge? 
Thomas and Edge were solid songwriters, but their general sound was extremely uncool. Hayward and Lodge, at their core, are pop songwriters. You could have taken any of their old songs, fiddled with the arrangements, and you would have ended up with something that would have sounded good in any decade. Edge and Thomas, however, were different. They were not pop songwriters. They were weirdo hippies whose songs were tied inextricably to the era in which they were written. There wasn't a chance anything they could write would ever end up hitting the charts in the 80s. However, they were still members of the band, and they hadn't been kicked completely to the curb yet, as they would be around the time of The Other Side of Life. So, Edge gets a single track on this album, and Thomas gets a mini-suite to close things out. The group did bury their contributions on the second side, though. I guess following the general principle of front-load the album with hits, put the weird stuff on the back where fewer people are likely to notice it. Seriously, is Ray Thomas even on the first half of this record? Like, there's no flute. I don't hear his harmonies. He didn't write anything. I hear a little bit of his voice and talking out of turn. Yeah. But and he's in the harmonies in that bridge or whatever section of what was that other song I talked about? In my world. In my world. (laughs) See how memorable that song is. (laughs) I mean, if he was getting paid the same as everybody else, that's a sweet gig. Yeah. Yeah. But uh uh, he no longer, he really didn't fit this, you know, no. their new thing. But anyway, with Graham Edge, we end up with 22,000 days, which is about, you know, living every day to the fullest because we only have 22,000 days to live. And I kind <laughs> of wonder about the math that Edge is doing here. Like, is he counting childhood? Is he being really pessimistic? Because 22,000 days is just a smidge over 60 years which is, you know, well below the life expectancy in both the U.S. and England. I actually know what his reasoning was. It was one of the little tidbits I excavated from that piece of shit garbage book. <laughs> oh, absolutely uh, enlighten me. I am curious. His thought process was your first five years and your last five years don't really count. So you end up with around 22,000 days of functional, useful time. Okay, so my my thought was correct. Yeah, Edge was never the best songwriting writer in the band. Like his best contributions, you know, outside of poetry were, I guess, higher and higher from To Our Children's Children's Children, which absolutely rules. Yeah. with the power of 10 billion butterfly sneezes. Man, with his flaming pyre, has conquered the wayward breezes, climbing to tranquility far above the cloud, conceiving the heavens clear of misty shroud. It's also just some poetry with a jam behind it. I don't know if you would count it as a quote unquote song, but as songs go, you would get, I would guess it would be Don't You Feel Small from A Question of Balance, which is not a bad song at all, but it's 
easily one of the least notable songs of Mm -hmm. the era for the band. But so 22,000 Days is not as good a song as Don't You Feel Small. And it's hampered by 80s production that doesn't really jibe with the song. And the song kind of feels at odds with the new vision of the band. It's not a bad song at all. And I'm glad that the group was still recording songs like this to demonstrate that they weren't just a modern pop band. They were, in fact, still the Moody Blues. But I can't pretend that this isn't the worst song on the album. It's too long. It's it's over five minutes. It's not a really good song to begin with. And it's kind of jarringly out of place. I mean, I like this song. If it sounds like I'm being mean... I'm a dweeb. I enjoy this song thoroughly, but I kind of feel embarrassed that I like this song, which is the standard (laughs) that we're using here. Uh, What do you think, Amanda? I actually like this one a lot more than I probably should. It's it's big and dramatic and kind of ridiculous, and it's got... Those the the multiple layers of big fat vocal harmonies that I like so much in Moody Blues songs, and it's good percussion too. I like that real heavy Marshall sound. I'm guessing that's the edge difference. It's he did something real very similar on Hole in the World on the present. The, the drums are the reason I like that one so much too. I think is much better. I really like that. Well, yeah, I I think so, too. But I like this one a lot. I wouldn't call it essential by any means, but it's it's solid. And I also I do like on Graham Edge's songs because he doesn't sing. I like how his songs tend to have everybody singing. He's like, if if I can't, then all of you guys are going to. As far as like his usefulness, I guess, to this new sound, Ray Thomas did not like the new recording methods at all, where everybody did their stuff separately. He really preferred the more collaborative um, acoustic analog method. Um, That is the least surprising thing I have ever heard. (laughs) Right. Whereas Graham Edge, who had always liked being on the cutting edge of new drum technology, he looked at all this electronic equipment and said, ooh, neat. (laughs) So he I, he integrated a little bit better, well, a lot better than Ray Thomas did. And I think with Thomas, it was partly him getting left behind and partly him choosing to stay behind. It wasn't necessarily an amicable choice, but I like I like that Edge kept up for a while. And I think he did a good job with it here. It's a it's a weird song. And you're right that it doesn't necessarily fit with the whole rest of the vibe. But I like it. I think he did better on the present because on that one, he wrote going nowhere. And yeah, that works like real well. That's a real good song. Somebody tell me. And Thomas sings going nowhere. Yeah, that's and, and he the, sings the it edge very Thomas, well. You know, access, you know, works real well there. Anyway, what do you think, John? I find this song fascinating because I, I feel like at its core, this song is an absolute nothing groove. <laughs> but mm. the other members of the band, I feel like they worked their ass off to try and develop and stretch that absolute nothing groove into something that's actually pretty okay. 
Like, mm-hmm. like they have alternating combinations of main vocalists at different points. There's a, a lengthy harmonica solo. There's a, a weird a, harmonica. Yes. There's kind of a, a really eerie, menacing guitar solo that kind of reminds me of some of my favorite midsection passages on a question of balance. Even near the end, uh, Mraz, he has this synth part. Uh, the synth sound that comes out of nowhere that's different from what's before to like try and make it lurch forward just a little bit. Let's, let's just get this movie forward a little more. And they may have overdone the trick in trying to read out everything they could from this, but I really respect the effort. Because, yeah, if I if I think too hard about this song, it completely collapses in every possible mm-hmm. way. But I really enjoy it every time I listen to it. What do you think, Mike? Yeah, I like this one. I, I don't think it's any kind of classic or anything, but there's there's something about Edge's songs. For the sake of argument, I'm I'm not counting higher and higher because that's just its own kind of thing. Um, that's one of the best things ever recorded to the yes. point that it feels like it doesn't ca- it's not fair to count it. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. But Edge's songs, they're always just kind of um, intriguingly lumpy and gnome like. Like they just, yeah, like they're they're not like Edge himself. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I I I feel like Higher and Higher was probably largely written by other band members. Yeah, I mean, what what makes Higher and Higher great is you know, I think it's very much a collaborative effort. But uh, absolutely. But I'm also thinking of like After You Came. that song yeah just just strange little things and i i like that about them and this is i just realized this during the recording this is the first time on the whole album where we're getting those big enormous moody blues harmonies yeah we are where they they sound like you know a celestial choir or something yeah Uh, this is the first like this is the first i know ray thomas is on other songs yeah. But like this is the first time that he's really Ray Thomasing because yep. as soon yeah. as I hear him yeah. go this time yeah. like, I'm like there you are Ray That's him. I'm glad you're That's here. That, that big old operatic vibrato that he has. Yeah. Yeah. It adds a ton. And this is this is the one that feels the most I think classic moody bluesy. Yeah. It just mm-hmm. just in terms of how they went about it. Like the voice has the most classic melody on the whole album, but this, this feels like, you know, minus the digital fanciness. This feels like it has the most in common with like the spirit of those older albums. Anyway, I'm feeling a little trepidatious about moving (laughs) on, but with y'all's permission, let's talk about track seven nervous. Ah! 
I've said lots of times I don't tend to like John Lodge's ballads that is true for this song too I don't especially like it but I don't know why so I've been spending the last couple of days trying to figure out what my problem is part of it is something that I have complained about very very often which is John Lodge's voice as I have said ad nauseum he is a stellar backup singer and harmonizer and a very weak lead singer And I think everybody knew that in the prior version of the band. On the Core 7 albums, Lodge rarely gets a lead vocal all to himself. The songs he wrote generally ended up with a shared vocal, like on Send Me No Wine, or sometimes one of the other band members would step up and sing it alone, like Hayward did on Candle of Life or Pinder on To Share Our Love. And to give Lodge his due, Candle of Life is my favorite Moody Blues song. And if Lodge did take the lead, the other guys were usually providing a very strong backup choir, like on Ride My Seesaw or Eyes of a Child. One of the few times his solo vocal is front and center is Isn't Life Strange, which, like Mike, I do not enjoy. Isn't life strange? A turn of the page. I don't really know the dynamics that led to all these choices, but starting with Octave and stepping in a slide zone, you get a lot more of Lodge singing his songs all by himself. By the way, Steppin' in a Slide Zone is a good song, but wouldn't it be vastly improved if the vocals were modeled on Ride My Seesaw or I'm Just a Singer in a Rock and Roll Band? Yeah. Yes. Also, what in God's name does Steppin' in a Slide Zone even mean? <laughs> don't think about it. <laughs> he could be walking through a time zone, Phil. We don't know. And the 80s production techniques did not do Lodge's voice any favors. If you listen to his solo vocal on, say, Evening, back on Days of Future Past, I mean, for one thing, he's about 15 years younger. And for another thing, there are so many overdubs and resulting beautiful tape hiss that he gets integrated into the rest of the mix, and it sounds great. Evening has come to pass. 
Here, everything is so clean and shiny that he's got absolutely nothing to prop him up in that just doesn't work. On the other hand, I do think the lyrics of the song are actually pretty good. It's similar to Talking Out of Turn in that it's playing on the idea of this relationship isn't working and it's clearly my fault, but I don't know why I keep acting like this. And I I agree with Mike that that's an interesting take. And the part that starts with seems to me I've been a long time on this road is especially good. I, I do. I like that part a lot. The synths are relatively tasteful. The strings are really good. And the arrangement in general works really well. And, and it has a real flute. <laughs> Hi, Ray Thomas. I missed you. But on the whole, I still put the song in the dislike column, even though I'm, I, I fully, I, it's not fair of me. And I, I still don't really know why. And, Another thing that it comes down to is the song is way the hell too long. Five minutes, 45 seconds is just ridiculous. A good two minutes, like say the majority of the Bring It On Home repetitions could have been cut and the song would be way better. So listening to this, listening to the song for this episode, my opinion of it has risen from terrible to mediocre, which is a huge step. So maybe in 15 more years, it will get all the way to good. Lodge himself really loves it, though. I've heard the Moody Blues play this live at least twice, possibly three times out of the four times in total that I've seen them. And it got a big, long introduction every time. And then I sat there very bored for six or seven minutes. (laughs) So I guess to me, I like Isn't Life Strange way more than you and Mike do. I think it's a great Mm -hmm. song. This song to me kind of feels like Discount Isn't Life Strange. (laughs) Like it's got the same basic structure. Like it's got like a quiet kind of pretty verse and then like a big bombastic chorus. And I really, really like the verses. I like, you know, Ray Thomas shows up. It's nice. The melody is really pleasant. And then you get to the chorus, though, and like I love like the big bombastic chorus and isn't life strange. But here it it feels big without having much substance. So. I enjoy the song. I always just feel like this is a much worse rewrite of Isn't Life Strange. Hmm. And it's the kind of song where when I'm listening to this album, I enjoy it. I never skip it. But like, I never get the desire to like actually play this song outside of the context of me going, I'm going to listen to Long Distance Voyager now. Uh, What do you think, John? So Amanda and I have been arguing about John Lodge ballads pretty much as <laughs> long, really long I, time. yeah, as I've known her in any context. I like Nervous, but I actually think there's a lot of merit in what Amanda's saying here. I, I, I feel, yeah, because I like all of the individual elements except for the chorus, which I, I used to like more than <sighs> yeah. I do now. It's, it's gone down for me, but I feel like the proportions of everything are just kind of off because yeah it shouldn't end up being on an almost six minute song like parts are just they're just padded and repeated too much and which is a shame because the parts of this song that i like i really 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 like Uh uh-huh the verses are so good they are and i think you make a good point about the proportions being off yeah it 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 feels like i feel like it needed another pass or two in, in, in in getting into its final formation but again the the verses are so lovely and like i i like it 
when, when this one comes up on shuffle, uh, whether in a studio or a live context. But I also have to somewhat shut off my brain during the chorus. And I can't just pretend that that doesn't happen. So good mm-hmm. song with a lot of asterisks, I would say. Hey, what do you think, Mike? I don't hate this song. Woo! <laughs> it's, you know, it's not, I don't think it's great. I'm not going to play it to impress anyone. But, I mean, just despite it having all the flaws that you've all mentioned, it's just too close to ballady ELO for me <laughs> to hate it. Yeah. It's, it has so much in common. I think maybe even more than Talking Out of Turn does. John Lodge and Jeff Lynn have, I think, more in common than either of them would want to admit. <laughs> That's beyond just their initials. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's I'm thinking in particular of a song like, for instance, Big Wheels, mm. which is one of my favorite deep cuts on uh, Out of the Blue. like that song a lot more than nervous but they're they're similar enough that i can't write nervous off and i i actually if i have to choose i'm gonna pick nervous over isn't life strange just because yeah me too oh come on it's not based on paco bell's canon which uh, i've said true. before is the slowest way to my heart <laughs> I, I don't understand you people <laughs> isn't life strange hatred yeah you know it's a great song uh, don't you dare Anyway, let's talk about the next track on this album, Painted Smile. I can sing, I can dance, just give me a chance to do my turn for you. There's a chance I'll slip but with stiff upper lip, I'll sing my song for you. Laughter is free, but it's so hard to be a jester all the time. No one's believing I'm the same when I'm bleeding, and I hurt all the time deep inside. As a preliminary comment, giving a glimpse behind the scenes of what we do here at Discord and Rhyme, when we do group-hosted episodes, such as when we talk about various Moody Blues albums, we all enter our notes separately and only start to look seriously <laughs> at what the others wrote a day or so before recording. Phil and I have been having conversations about the Moody Blues in some form for about 25 years. And while we don't agree on everything, there are a lot of areas where we've landed in alignment. So imagine how amused I was when I read his notes on 22,000 Days and found that his general setup for that was nearly point for point what I wrote for Painted Smile. (laughs) We've been doing this for a really long time. Yep. Anyway, as Phil described in his comments on 22,000 Days, 
When the Moody Blues entered the 1980s and attempted to reconfigure their general approach so as to appeal to a new generation of fans, they found that they had to address some nagging questions, including and especially, what do they do about Ray Thomas? In the second half of the decade, they made the short-sighted decision to pretend that he didn't exist. He was wiped from everything but the cover art and credits list for the 1986 album, The Other Side of Life. And in the sessions for the 1988 album, Sur la Mer, he didn't even bother to show up. At this stage of things, though, the band hadn't developed a chronic case of making terrible decisions en masse. So for this album and the present, they came up with a stopgap solution. To crib a phrase that Ray would later use to introduce this and the next two tracks in concert, they gave him the arse end of the album. <laughs> Painted Smile, Reflective Smile, and Veteran Cosmic Rocker make for a three-part suite. And for a while, they performed all three parts in concert, though by the late 1980s, they only did Veteran Cosmic Rocker. This music was largely savaged by critics, and it's not hard to see why. This isn't just Ray Thomas music. It's confessional, soul-bearing Ray Thomas music. And it's extremely out of fashion on an album where the band is otherwise trying to reposition itself somewhat in the mainstream of culture. He presents himself as a sad clown, an entertainer who always has to be upbeat and cheerful for a public that demands it, but who also feels depressed the whole time. And he chooses to convey this message using what is essentially 80s synth pop circus music. <laughs> this track is extremely uncool by any rational measure. But as we have firmly established in previous episodes, Ray Thomas didn't give a f. And I think it's partially for this reason that I've always really liked this one. Ray seems the hell out of this. And the arrangements really go in hard on accentuating the depressed carnival angle of the lyrics. There's no flute, but you can't have everything all the time. Uh, what's your take on this one, Mike? I love that they gave Ray Thomas a suite at the end. Yes. That's like. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I know it's it's probably not a, a huge number of people, but some people had to be, you know, listening to the rest of the album going, where's Ray? When are we going to get to the Ray song? And, oh, man. Like Ray? Have all the Ray in the world! <laughs> That's, you know, I'm, I'm going to say something here that I've, I've never said before. The Ray Thomas suite at the end of the album, if you take it as a whole, is my favorite song on the album. Yeah. Wow! That's because it's so... They're not trying to be... Yeah, the keyboards are 80s. The production is 80s, but they're not trying to be hip and with the times. They're just letting Ray do his thing for three tracks, and I think it's terrific. They stopped trying to chase any sort of, I mean, they weren't trying to be trendy exactly, but they were trying to, like, minimize the potentially alienating aspects of their sound. And here they've mm -hmm. just dropped all that. And I also, I love Painted Smile just because... The way that he sings it, I mean, part of it is that he's he's just that much older, but he sounds there's such a weariness yes. to his voice on this song. And I just I get this whole scenario in my head where he's an out of work jester. He's been 
going to like, I don't know how many interviews singing the exact same song. I can sing. I can dance to a panel of interviewers that look like the cast of Shark Tank, just completely <laughs> stone faced. And just every time he sings this song, he, he he's a little more broken inside and he's a little more completely demoralized. It's I love it. I mean, I've, I've mentioned this before. I don't think there's there's not a better subject for a song than a clown who makes people laugh. But deep inside, he's really sad. That in coal mining. I like this one a lot, too, but it is kind of the first moment. I've long since learned to accept the production choices on this album. Yeah. But this is the one where I'm really like, uh, why does it sound this way? <laughs> it sounds like 80s CGI. Yes. Like the opening. <laughs> it sounds so unbelievably cheap. <laughs> and like... It's a very good song and like I like the lyrics and like as an old school Moody Blues fan, like I appreciate just letting Ray Thomas do his thing here. And while I don't think it's one of his all time best songs or anything, I like it. But boy, this is the one time on the album where I feel like the 80s-ness of it is just at war with what the song <laughs> is. Mm-hmm. And I really wish like Ray Thomas had recorded this song in like 1972 or something mm. where I think, you know, it would have sounded great here. Like, uh, I am such of two minds about it because I think it's a really good song. But boy, this is where the production just <laughs> absolutely annihilates my ability to like appreciate it as a song. What do you think, Amanda? It's Tears of a Clown. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Except instead of being a pop masterpiece for the ages, it's Ray Thomas being an aging rock star hippie weirdo. And I don't think this works at all. Sure. Um, the the sad circus aspect of it uh, has also been done better uh, by Supertramp in the song If Everyone Was Listening. I just, I, no, I feel like he's trying too hard. As much as I love finally getting to hear from my beloved Ray Thomas, this is just not, it doesn't work for me. Uh, you know what it, a lot of it boils down to is the forced chuckles mm. in his vocal take. And those are, I mean, that's a, that's a choice. I mean, you know, it's part of the song, but I also find it really obnoxious and trying way too hard. This like, I get what you're trying to do, Ray, but I don't think it's working out. And this is where you really, really hear the mismatch between Ray Thomas as an artist and the 1980s. Mm. <laughs> Just the whole 80s aesthetic. They don't go. I don't mind the like chuckles or whatever, because it's like I have long just accepted that Ray Thomas is the single cheesiest person who has ever been involved in pop music in any capacity. Yeah. So I just deal Possibly. with that. 
But uh, those keyboard tones. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we've gotten through the first part of this suite. Let's move on to the next part. Reflective smile. I hope we have a clip that's not the whole song. Ruh-roh. Your painted smile hides you still while you search yourself within. Yesterday and tomorrow's found. Fused as one upon solid ground. As all around the million crowd confuse themselves with raging sounds and their love's forgetfulness. A bond. So be thankful for your grease-paint clown. If loneliness wears the crown of the veteran cosmic rocker. Yep, that's the whole track. As a standalone, it's completely ridiculous. But as part of the three-track suite, it's... Well, okay, it's still completely ridiculous. (laughs) But it at least makes some sense in that context. It exists for exactly one purpose. And that is to provide something resembling a link between Painted Smile and Veteran Cosmic Rocker. Which it does, as long as you don't think too hard about it. The speaker in this case is not Ray Thomas, though he would recite the words in live performance. The speaker is longtime BBC radio personality Dave Simons, an old acquaintance of the band. And he's fine, as long as you don't remember that the band used to have a built-in voice of God to do these sorts of things. I would argue that this serves a second purpose, which is, hey, we're still the Moody Blues. Yeah, oh, that's a great point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, we're not just, you know, a bunch of pop guys now. We're still the same people that used to record weird poetry jams in the middle of our records. It feels a little forced, but I mean, I'm glad it's here, but I mean... It's not in my top five Moody Blues poems. <laughs> no. <laughs> and uh, I don't really have much more to say. How about you, Amanda? Now, typically Moody Blues poems were written by Graham Edge and recited by Mike Pinder. This is written by Ray yeah. Thomas and recited by some guy. Yeah. <laughs> and I, oh my goodness. And they're trying to throw back to the earlier poems. Like the way this is performed is not unlike Departure. Sure. Yeah. Mm. Like think of, or to fly to the sun without burning a wing. Or to fly to the sun without burning a wing. To lie in a meadow and hear the grass sing. To have all these things in our memories hold. And they use them to help us to <laughs> I think it is ridiculous, but I get why they did it. I like that they did it even though I don't like the actual thing. How about you, Mike? Yeah, I like that it's here. I like that they're messing with the formula a bit. You know, we hadn't gotten a poem for a while, and instead of leading off the album with it, they they tucked it away near the end. It serves you know, pretty much the same purpose as uh, the dream did on uh, on the threshold thereof. And yeah, there's not much to say about it, but I, th- I think it does the job. It's ridiculous, but this entire three-song stretch is ridiculous, and yes. that's why I love it. So, mm-hmm. Boy, is it. And speaking of ridiculous, <laughs> <laughs> let's move on to the conclusion of this album, Veteran Cosmic Rocker.
funniest description of veteran cosmic rocker I've ever encountered came from Russian music reviewer George Starriston, who called it, quote, a popmeister's take on Jefferson Airplane's plastic fantastic lover, end quote, and who also called it, quote, the kind of song one should be shot for, end quote. <laughs> I can't necessarily say these statements are clearly wrong, <laughs> but I've always enjoyed the hell out of it. And a cribbeline from the Buggles, I can't rewind, I've gone too far. Ray would claim that veteran Cosmic Rocker was a name that a review of one of their concerts had once given him. And whether it was meant as a compliment or an insult, Ray liked it and decided to own it. In live performances, he would shift the perspective of the song from the third person to a mix of third and first. And the lines, a crowd of fools got him slash me high and a crowd of fools getting high would always get a rousing cheer from the crowd. Woo! <laughs> the song also contains a midsection, unlike any other in their catalog. A Bo Diddley beat underpinning a jam centered around Thomas and Mraz. With Thomas getting to break out a harmonica and a flute part that's more than a light sonic garnish. They would extend this jam a good deal in live performance, and I enjoy the hell out of it in that context but I really enjoyed in the studio version as well. He struts, he strolls, his love is rock and roll. He's a veteran cosmic rocker. Tell you what it is, it's the best piece of music of the 20th century. It's the veteran cosmic rocker. <laughs> oh yeah. Is that not over the top enough for you? Well, how about the way this track ends? With the band members stacking harmonies on each other before Ray bellows the chorus and a final rousing, he's afraid that he will die, emerges before there's a big keyboard flourish. sitar at the end too i know this song might indeed be terrible but if so 
it might be the greatest terrible song I've ever heard. Okay, so where to start? (laughs) I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, when we were talking about The Voice, that The Voice is the best song on this album. (laughs) Yes! It is. The Voice is not my favorite song on this album. (laughs) My favorite song on this album is Veteran Cosmic Rocker. Hell yeah. And it's not even close. (laughs) (laughs) Like, so I've long had, you know, an affinity for cheesy Ray Thomas songs. The cheesier, the better. Ooh. You know, nice to be here, whatever. (laughs) I'll take them all. This is the dumbest, cheesiest Ray Thomas song ever, and it's absolutely fantastic. I love it. I love the lyrics. I love the way Ray sings it. I love, like, the stupid mid-song jam. I love the way he bellows, is afraid that he will die at the end of it. Okay, so... If you're, if you're a longtime listener, you might remember our Captain Beefheart Trout Mask Replica episode mm. where, you know, as the songs kept on going and got more repetitive, we're like, I'm just not going to talk about this one. This is my get out of Trout Mask Replica free card. This is my get out of bad taste free card. <laughs> <laughs> because, like, I recognize this is not a quote unquote good song. <laughs> but... I am not kidding when I say this is probably in my top five Moody Blues songs. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> I absolutely adore this. And I'm really sad that by the time I started seeing the Moody Blues live in the mid 90s, this had dropped out of the set list because I would have gone insane had they pulled this out. <laughs> I cannot defend my love of it, and you probably won't love it either unless you love the Moody Blues and Ray Thomas in the way that I do. But boy, I love this song in a completely indefensible way. <laughs> How about you, Mike? Oh, I think it's totally defensible. I mean, for, first of all, I mean, I love that... Before I knew that the title Veteran Cosmic Rocker was inspired by review, I knew that's what it was. <laughs> like, that's <laughs> such a criticky phrase. Veteran Cosmic yes. Rocker is the Moody Blues. I, yes. I love that they just <laughs> owned it. And that's that's the thing with this song is that they're not trying to do a psychedelic throwback. They're not reminding you that they're the band that did all those trippy songs on, on In Search of the Lost Chord. It is a psychedelic rock song, emphasis on finger quotes. <laughs> <laughs> it's everything about it is completely self-aware to yeah. fr- from the, yeah. the goofy flute solo in the middle to the tambora droning away at the end. Yeah, they they know exactly what this they is. They know exactly oh, yeah. what it is. I mean, the, the, the lyrics about some aging rocker who, who hasn't... Uh, Toked any weed in a while and and doesn't realize it's much stronger stuff now. And now he thinks he's going to die. Everything about it is the silliest thing in the world. And if you can't appreciate that, you need to stop being a stuck up indie rock guy and just learn to love things that are 
<laughs> Absolutely outlandish. I wouldn't change a thing about this song. Right. True maturity is when you realize that veteran cosmic rocker is better than the entirety of Animal Collective's Meriwether Post. <laughs> <laughs> Amanda, what say you? There is a part of me that really adores bad taste. <clears throat> and that part of me finds this song extremely satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> I fully recognize that this song is beyond dumb and I can't help loving it anyway. And in fact, if you guys follow us on Twitter, you might have seen almost exactly 10 years ago. Yep. I posted on Facebook. You guys, I love the Moody Blues, but veteran Cosmic Rocker might be the stupidest song I've ever heard. <laughs> and John replied, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing. You weren't wrong. <laughs> Neither of us were wrong. Right. Nope. This is Ray Thomas at his most Ray Thomas. Yeah. Where he just has never even thought about giving a fuck. <laughs> and the rest of the band went, sure. <laughs> I There's another part of me that can't help wondering what Mike Pinder in his prime could have done with the arrangement of this song. Mm. I think if he had got his hands on it, because you remember how we talked about before, Mike Pinder and Justin Hayward used to often arrange Ray Thomas's songs, and that is how we got masterpieces like Legend of a Mind and Eternity Road. You know, if they had jointly arranged this, I think it would have been, well, a, a lot more tasteful and probably yeah. a better song but it wouldn't have been as much fun. Yeah, it would be better more tasteful rocker. would ruin it. Yes. It needs to I, have know, no I taste. I kind of agree. <laughs> this song is completely bizarre and very lovable. Like, if I am being true to myself and, you know, just laying it out here, here's like for anybody who wants to criticize this podcast or me in particular for having bad taste. This is probably my favorite Ray Thomas song might be like, well, what about Legend of a Mind or Eternity Road? And again, I said what I said. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think those are better songs. Like, I can't defend that opinion at all. So if you ask me to defend that, I'm like, no, that's my only response. <laughs> nope. The heart wants what it wants. The heart wants what the heart wants. <laughs> and what the heart wants is better in f***ing cosmic rocker. That's right. <laughs> and on that note... That is Long Distance Voyager. So, Amanda, what is your final take on it? The Moody Blues 80s material is generally held in pretty low regard. And there are good reasons for that. As much as the band members would deny this in contemporary interviews, their instincts and aesthetics generally just fit better in the prior two decades. And 80s production trends largely just didn't fit with their songwriting styles. But that's not to say that the albums are not worth hearing. They definitely are. You just have to recalibrate your expectations and be prepared to dig past the shiny production tropes because there are often really good songs under there. Now, that being said, before we started preparing this episode, I actually hadn't really thought about this batch of albums that much. Definitely not to the extent that I've thought about the Core 7. And it turns out that Long Distance Voyager doesn't really hold up to close scrutiny. There are, there are some great songs on here, and there is The Voice at the beginning and Veteran Cosmic Rocker at the end, and you just run the gamut in between. 
but there is more on here than I realized before that just doesn't really work for whatever reason. It is for sure one of the better albums they made in that decade, but not as good as what came before it, even aside from the production mismatch. How about you, Mike? I like it. You know, it it's not covered in, you know, it's it's not slathered in that sort of molassesy melotrony goodness the way the the core 7 albums mm-hmm. are. But you know, the songs are mostly still really good. You know, I won't say it's the last time the Moody Blues had any good songs, but I think it's the last time where you hear them not sounding like the songs were all played by a giant keyboard. So it also has that going for it. But I, I think overall, it's a it's it's a real good batch of songs. Some of them are terrific. One of those terrific ones is Veteran Cosmic Rocker. <laughs> By the way, I am so glad that we're all in agreement there because I was going to be so sad if somebody was like, oh, it sucks. That's <laughs> Well, it does, but that's not necessarily <laughs> a bad thing. <laughs> no, I, it, I won't even I won't even argue that it sucks. It absolutely succeeds at being what it is. It is the exact song Ray Thomas wanted. Yes. yes. Yep. How about you, John? I'm not sure. I might like this a little more than Amanda does, but I still agree with her general points, especially the one about how it – when you give it really, really close scrutiny, there are some things that emerge around the edges that – yeah. They go, oh, like what the, – the analogy that's actually coming to mind for me is I'm thinking of you know, 15, 10 years ago, around the time when uh, everybody started to get HD TVs and mm. standard was going out. But especially oh. like on news broadcasts, they hadn't adapted the makeup yet huh. to – Yeah. To, and, and you could start to be like, oh, that, that doesn't quite work. Or even if you like see certain old shows um, – you Old know, Twilight Zones. In, in, yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah. and you and you see it in HD. You have to kind of adjust your expectations, uh, and I do think that you know I I've I like all the songs on here to some extent or another, um, but there are things around the edges that maybe go, eh, maybe they could have done this better, maybe they could have done that better, and yet with all that said, the Moody Blues transitioned into the '80s really well, and a lot of bands in their general quality tier from the seventies did not make that transition nearly as well. No, true. like we, we have to give some credit where credit is due here. I think yeah. that this is a, a very enjoyable album that, you know, has aged very well. Some of the individual parts may be, may have, may have issues around the edges, but as a whole, it, I think it holds up pretty well. Again, as again, as long as you you set your expectations accordingly. Again, I'd agree with that. Like, I have many complaints about this album. There's stuff I think doesn't work, and you know, there's issues all over the place. But compared to other like quote unquote dinosaur bands, the Moody yeah. Blues transitioned to the '80s really well. Like, this album hit number one in the U.S. Yep. Very few bands from the '60s were hitting number one by the 1980s. It demonstrates that they were doing something right. And again, unlike a lot of bands from that era, if you listen to this album now, it doesn't sound like a totally embarrassing attempt to keep up with the times. There's some jankiness, like the core seven are in the past and they would never make anything that good again. And, you know, you just kind of have to accept that. But overall, this is a really solid album featuring a bunch of really really good pop songs 
a bunch of songs that, you know, have a couple flaws, but overall are still very good and veteran cosmic rocker. (laughs) So, I mean, yeah, this is an album that I think is well worth anybody's time. So, Amanda, someone likes Long Distance Voyager. Where should they go next? Uh, well, just keep moving along, I guess. The album after this, The Present, I think I actually like a little bit better than Long Distance yep. Voyager. Um, after that, they get progressively worse. Um, again, worth hearing, but eh, not great. But then, in 1999, they just magically returned to form and they Woo. put out Strange Times. Yep, that's a good album. That is a good, good album. Mm-hmm. Don't sleep on Strange Times just because it's so late in their career. It's got it, the production sounds pretty 90s, but it has aged a lot better than a lot of the 80s stuff has. The songwriting is spectacular. There's an A plus Justin Hayward pop song on there. There's a Ray Thomas song for nine year olds. There's a poem recited by Graham Edge himself. There's lots of flute. It's just a all around winner. There's two very boring John Lodge ballads. Sure. <laughs> so you've got everything you could ever want. I, I feel the need to reiterate that the Ray Thomas song on that album is everything you would ever want from a Ray <laughs> Thomas song. Fairy tales sometimes come true. Use fairy dust and pixie glue. Then all the love will stick to you, my little lovely. Always believe and never doubt The wizards cast their spells about There's such a lot you won't lose count If you look closely Ripples are like dreams Searching for the shore Or together make oceans roar Night visions make spirits soar So choose one wisely I was so happy the first time I heard that. I'm like, yes, Ray Thomas is back, motherfucker. (laughs) That's right. I will reiterate that uh, the present is very, very good. And I think it is actually a better album than this. Uh, Not as many obvious highlights, but I think, you know, generally speaking, the quality is consistently higher. Yeah. And it starts off with Blue World and Meet Me Halfway.
So late era Moody Blues is iffy. And if you want to like find a lot of more music like this, well, you're not necessarily going to succeed. But I would recommend uh, Justin Hayward's mid 90s solo album, The View from the Hill. Yeah. Which um, I think most people who care about his solo work consider it his best album. And I think it probably is. I don't think it's as good as most Moody Blues albums because Justin Hayward can't really fill up like 65 minutes of music by himself with consistently excellent music. But if you like the general Justin Hayward style and are willing to accept his like kind of late period romantic lovey dovey isms, then you will probably enjoy that album quite a bit or at least most of it. John, aside from the presence, which again, really, really good album, I'm gonna uh, give a slightly uh, off the beaten path recommendation here. So, in July 1981, the Moody Blues performed a concert near Chicago. This concert was recorded by ABC Radio and later broadcast for syndication in the United States. As of recording, this broadcast is not available in an official release. But I can tell you from experience that it is very good and not at all difficult to find. I will not say exactly how, (laughs) but I will observe that a great thing about 2023 is that we live in a world with organizations devoted to providing archives of just this sort of thing. people should go from here well i mean we've we've recommended i mean over the course of this podcast we've recommended like every moody blues album worth hearing i think so i thought i would try for something that kind of sounds moody blues influenced 
which is not all that easy to find because <laughs> we're like the only people under 60 who care about the Moody Blues at all. But there is a band that I discovered recently that I'm going to recommend an album by. I'm going to recommend uh, the album Conundrum by the Swedish band Hellas. That's H-A with an umlaut, L-L-A-S. It came out in 2020, and it's it's a little harder rocking than the Moody Blues, but uh, it does some similar things. They they refer to themselves as adventure rock. Ooh, I'm, I'm liking this. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and it's you know it's they're not quite prog rock, and they're not quite not that in a in a similar way to the Moody Blues. Yeah, much like the, the song. Moody Blues. The the song that I have prepared a clip for is uh, called "Carry On." It's about the comic book hero Moon Knight, and it's just about the John Logiest sounding thing I've ever heard since R.E.M.'s Texarkana. Ooh. <laughs> See what you think. <laughs> I've it already. Ooh. Yeah, me too. Sister in the sky was watching over him. In the castle left to die. Like the tide is on the road. I am on board. our discussion of long distance voyagers so next episode we are kicking off our fifth anniversary extravaganza within the court of the crimson king by king crimson at long last we all debate who among us is the biggest king crimson fan <laughs> y'all are gonna enter the court of the crimson queen <laughs> <laughs> anyway roll credits Thank you for listening to Discord and Rhyme. You can buy Long Distance Voyager and other albums by the Moody Blues at your local record store. And if you're into vinyl, you're practically guaranteed to find it for $10 or less. Uh, $10 or less. You can find most Moody Blues albums for $2 or less. <laughs> or the usual places such as Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, and Amazon. Visit our website, discordpod.com, for show notes and a Spotify playlist featuring this album and every song we clipped in this episode. You can follow Discord and Rhyme at DiscordPod on Twitter for news and updates. You can visit John's music review archive at johnmcferranmusicreviews.org. Fair warning, he rates albums in hexadecimal. I do. Editing is by Amanda Rogers. And special thanks to Mike DeFabio for production, our theme song, and original music. See you next album. And this is as appropriate as we'll ever get for this podcast. Keep as cool as you can. He's dancing to the river.